passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. It is uh, great to be with you here this morning. Uh, Welcome to Crosswinds Church, our Spencer campus. Uh, I'm so happy uh, to have um, our our friends from the University of Alaska Lincoln with us this morning, and uh, we are excited that you are here with us. Uh, This morning is our last Sunday as we have been looking at uh, a, a series on the afterlife. We've been looking at what the Bible tells us about life after death. Our first five weeks of this series, we looked at different key truths from the Bible that tell us about what is to come, what we can expect after this life. And uh, last week we did something unique. This week we're going to do something unique as well. Uh, The reality is we are not going to be able to answer all of the questions that we might have about the afterlife in five weeks or in 10 weeks or maybe even in 20 weeks. And so one of the things that we did during this series is we handed out some little cards for people to vote for the questions that they were most interested in hearing what the Bible had to say about different aspects of the afterlife. And we started last week by looking at some of these questions, and we saw that this desire, this hunger that is within us to know about the afterlife is actually placed there by God. Ecclesiastes tells us that God has set eternity on our hearts. We want to know about eternity. We want to know what life is going to be like after this life. And so last week we looked at some questions, questions about how does God judge those who have never heard the gospel before, or what does the Bible say about suicide? And this morning we're going to look at some different questions, the questions that received the most votes from this survey that we took of our congregation. Now, as, as with last week, uh, there were a number of questions that we felt were important for us to answer, but we didn't have time to look at in a, a Sunday morning service. And so there are a couple other questions that we have written answers to that you can find on our website. Uh, if you look in your sermon notes, you'll see where that website is located, and you can check out those answers, uh, the answers to those questions, as well as look at our uh, sermon from last week that answers some other questions as well. Uh, this morning should be a fun Sunday. If not, uh, good news, it's only one Sunday, and then we'll get back to some normalcy here in a little bit. Uh, but as we approach these questions that are, uh, that are difficult to answer, uh, we want to do it in the right spirit. We want to do so with a, a spirit of humility and utter confidence, not in the answers to these questions, but, into, uh, but an utter confidence in the God who holds eternity in the palm of his hands. So let's pause and uh, let's pray this morning as we approach these questions. Please pray with me. Uh, Jesus, uh, we, we do again confess our great need for you. We need you uh, every hour, not only to sustain us, to preserve us, but also to help us to understand your word. And so with that in mind, we ask that as we look at these questions, we would do so with a spirit of humility, that we would do so in a way that places our confidence not in these pieces of the afterlife puzzle, 
but firmly and solely in you. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would come, that you would teach us, and that you would turn our hearts to the glorious Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we have four questions to look at this morning. Let's go ahead and look at the the most asked question from our church, and that is uh, a question of uh, of great uh, importance, and that is, can our loved ones in heaven see us? Many of us have wrestled with this question. I remember being in high school when my grandfather passed away, uh, was wrestling with this, uh, this question because he had been a faithful Christian for as long as I had known him. I had recently become one, and right then he had passed away. I wanted to know if he could see my growth as a Christian as I became a, a, a more mature Christian, and I knew that that growth would make him proud, and I was wrestling with the question of whether he could see that growth in me. And many of us have wrestled with that same question before. We, we, use, or we wrestle with this question because it helps us with the grieving process. As we lose a loved one, we wonder, can they see us still? Are they watching our lives? Are they watching over us? Indeed, it's a, it's a wonderful sentiment. But the question is, is that what the Bible teaches? Well, let's look at a couple passages that seem to speak to this question. If you have a Bible, uh, and I hope you do, uh, if you don't, um, please see us after the service and we can get you one. Uh, please open to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. This, uh, these two verses that we're going to look at are oftentimes used as an example of, of proof why uh, we can say that our loved ones look over us. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As you read, especially the beginning of that passage, it seems to picture our loved ones who are in heaven, the saints of old, looking down, watching us uh, compete in the race of faith. The imagery uh, is an imagery of a stadium and a, a track and field contest as we are surrounded by those who are witnessing our faith and they are cheering us on. And yet when we read this passage in the context of Hebrews 11, And Hebrews 10, we can see that that might not be the best answer, the best way to interpret these two verses. Many of us are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. It is considered to be one of the most uh, famous or popular verses of the Bible. It looks at the faith of the saints of the Old Testament. It looks at men and women who trusted in the promises of God. And yet, while they trusted in those promises, they never saw them fully realized on this earth. It tells us of Abraham. It tells us of the judges. It tells us of Jacob and Joseph, all of these men and women as well, who looked toward the promises of God and yet never saw them realized fully on this earth and longed for something greater than this life. 
You see, the book of Hebrews was written to Christians who were suffering. They were in the midst of hardship. They were in the midst of persecution, and they were tempted to abandon their faith because they had difficulty understanding how this God who had promised so many blessings could allow this suffering to happen. Hebrews 10 sums up the, the, the argument or, or the pinnacle of this charge to endurance. It says this in Hebrews 10. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Here at the height of this author's charge for those who are questioning whether it was worth it to live the Christian faith says that we must endure because in the midst of hardship, in the midst of our suffering, when there seems to be a lack of fulfillment of God's promises, everything that God has promised is, is over here, and yet I'm experiencing hardship and pain and suffering. In the midst of that, we are those who have faith that God has not abandoned His promises. God is still faithful. God still will fulfill His promises. That's how Hebrews 10 ends. Note how Hebrews 11, the very next verse, starts. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It says that we will not give up. We have faith that God will keep His promises. And this is what faith means. It means to have assurance in the things that we cannot see. And after that, Hebrews chapter 11 lists example after example of men and women of the faith who longed for the promises of God, trusted that God would fulfill His promises, and yet never saw them fully realized on the earth. The author of Hebrews is trying to encourage these Christians to not give up hope when life seems hopeless, but to look to the saints of the Old Testament as examples of how we can live with confidence that God will one day fulfill His promises. Why did I spend so much time on that? It's because it's crucial for us to understand that to see what Hebrews 12 is talking about. When Hebrews 12 verse 1 tells us that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, it's not telling us that we are being watched by the saints of old, including our loved ones. It's telling us that if we look at the Bible, if we look at church history, if we look at how God's people have lived for ages, we are surrounded by examples or witnesses or testimonies of how we can faithfully live as we await God's promises. Hebrews chapters 10, 11, and 12 encourage us not to live for the approval of our loved ones, but instead to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
And God has graciously given us witness after witness, example after example of how we are to live in this life while we await the fulfillment of God's promises. If you find yourself at a place where you live with habitual sickness, there is pain in your body constantly and you long for your resurrected body and you want to know how you can endure in the midst of hardship, in the midst of that physical suffering. Hebrews 11 tells you that you are not alone. Hebrews 12 tells us to look to the saints who have gone before you, who have looked with confidence toward the unfulfilled promises of God that will one day be fulfilled. Do you want to know how to live in the midst of relational or emotional turmoil all this life? You long for the peace and the harmony that will reign in all relationships when Christ returns. Hebrews 11 and 12 tells us that we can look to the Old Testament. We can look to the saints who have gone before us. We can even look to our loved ones and the example that they set for us as we continue to live in strife. God has, God has graciously equipped us to live faithfully with a hopeful expectation in this life by looking to those who have gone before us. So Hebrews 12, while often cited to describe or defend as evidence for our loved ones in heaven actually looking down upon us, uh, probably doesn't refer to that. But there are other places in the Bible that seem to suggest that the, the saints of heaven are at least somewhat aware of the happenings of this life. Significantly, as we look at two different passages, we can see that the saints of heaven are focused on things in this world, in this life, that have eternal significance. Let's take a look at two examples. Jesus is giving a number of parables in Luke chapter 15, and he's talking about the importance of salvation and the great rejoicing that takes place in heaven when someone repents of their sin and enters into the kingdom of God. He says this, Luke 15, verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. As you read that, you might say, okay, well, that could just refer to the angels. Well, just a few verses later in verse 10, it says this, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Note that it's not just joy of the angels of God, but joy before the angels of God when a sinner repents. The heavenly courts, including our loved ones who are in heaven now, are aware of the eternal state of the people here on earth. And whenever someone becomes a Christian, whenever the lost are found, whether it's here in Spencer or it's on the other side of the globe, there is no place where the heavenly courts are not aware of God's powerful salvation being at work and heaven bursts into praise and rejoicing and thanksgiving when the lost are found. So the heavenly courts, our loved ones, seem to be aware of matters that include salvation 
There's also a, another passage, Revelation 6, shows us that they have another, or have some more knowledge of events transpiring on earth. It says this, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Here in Revelation 6, the saints of heaven seem to be aware that those who had done injustice to them on earth had not yet received judgment. The people of earth seem to have a knowledge of the events that are taking place, excuse me, the people of the heavenly courts seem to have a knowledge of the things that are happening on earth, namely that the wicked have not yet been brought to justice. And the heavenly courts cry out for that justice for the people of God. There is an earnest desire for the people of heaven that God would bring his perfect justice on the earth. You see, while the Bible isn't 100% clear, it seems like the, the heavenly courts are indeed aware of some things here on earth, but they're primarily concerned with matters of eternal significance, such as the salvation of the lost and justice for the saints. So if we go back to high school Jordan, High school Jordan, who was wondering if his recently deceased grandfather could see him grow in his faith. Was, is my grandfather aware of the growth since the last time I saw him? In one sense, I think, yes. I believe he was aware of my conversion, my my subsequent growth, and the exact same way that he has rejoiced over the conversion and subsequent growth of people all over the face of the planet in the last 15 years. But should I live for the approval of this beloved family member? Absolutely not. Indeed, if we seek to comfort our grief when we lose a loved one by depending upon the hope that comes from the thought that they can see us now, that they're watching over us now, I think we're settling for second best. The greatest hope for our grief The greatest comfort for our sadness that we could possibly imagine is found in Jesus' words in John chapter 11. It says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? There is rest, comfort available, and the confidence we can have of Jesus' words. We can know that our loved ones who have believed in Jesus, though they die, will yet live. And we will be reunited in the new creation with them for all of eternity, joining our voices together in praises to our glorious King. Let's look at another question. 
a question that hopefully covers a number of questions that you may have uh, had over these past few weeks, and that is this. What will day-to-day life be like in the new creation? Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the Christian view of the afterlife, and it was a lot different than what our, our normal thinking in our culture is about the afterlife. God has a plan for all of eternity, not for us to live apart from our bodies, just as spirits sitting on clouds, playing harps, but instead to dwell in our bodies, to live in resurrected bodies in a resurrected heavens and earth. In fact, all of reality will be resurrected. Everything will be purified, glorified, and good. There will be no sin anymore, no more sickness. What will this new creation be like for all of eternity? Well, first, the Bible tells us the new creation will be a place of rest. will be a place of rest. Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews 4 speak of the new creation as a place of rest. Hebrews 3 and 4 talk about Joshua and how the people of Israel were given rest in the promised land. And the author of Hebrews says that that's just a small taste of the rest that is to come for God's people. Notice these words in Hebrews 4, starting in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, this idea of rest that is awaiting Christians in the new creation doesn't mean that we sit around and we do nothing. It doesn't mean that we are stuck in a place where we are eternally bored. It is a description of peace of contentment, of wholeness, of harmony, a place where we rest from our labors and our strivings, a place where there is contentedness that comes from being in the presence of God in a world where all things work together and are right and good. I think if we examine our hearts, we can see that there are times where we long for this justice, for this peace, this harmony in this life, where we long for someone to come and to make things right. And that's what the new creation will be like. Now, does that mean we'll get to sleep? That's a question that's commonly asked. Well, the Bible doesn't exactly say, but let me just suggest this. Sleep is not a sign of imperfection or sin. Uh, I I love sleep, so I'm glad it's not. (laughs) We need sleep. But we don't need sleep because we are sinful. We need sleep because we are not God. It's because we're finite. We're not limitless like God is. We need to rest and recharge our batteries. Have you ever thought that the reason why we have to sleep is because God has instituted a constant reminder every single day that we are not God? God never has to sleep. Every single day after like two hours, I'm ready for a nap. 
It is a reminder to us that we are not God. It is not a sign of imperfection, but a sign that we are different than God, and we will always be different than God. So I see no reason for us to suggest that we won't sleep in the new creation, and all of you other young parents with young children can say amen right now. It is a good gift from God. Second, the new creation will be, while the new creation will be a place of rest, it will also be a place of work. Consider this picture of the new creation from Revelation chapter 22. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This idea of reigning isn't referring just to God and Jesus. It's referring to Christians as well. God has created humanity in the very beginning of God's plan. He created humanity not to be his slaves or to be his servants, but instead to reign over creation with him. God had a perfect plan for humanity to rule over creation alongside of him. And we see in the the new creation, God's plan is fully realized. This idea of reigning does include work. That's part of God's plan for humanity, to participate in the work of God in creation. The word worship here in verse 3 also talks about this idea of work. It means that we will serve God. It's active. We will worship God by serving Him in our vocations. Now, if we're being honest, uh, for some of you, that makes you a little nervous. Your only experience with, ba- with work is bad or mundane or it's something that you see as a necessary evil. And so for the idea of work to be available or to be a part of the new creation uh, does not sound appealing to you at all. But remember, this is a resurrected heaven, a resurrected earth, a resurrected creation, and our work will be resurrected as well. Our work will be perfectly glorified, purified. It will be completely meaningful. In the new creation, every single thing that you do will be eternally significant. Indeed, many, if not most, vocations will carry over to the new creation. Some will become obsolete. Law enforcement, healthcare, pastors, uh, some others. But engineers, farmers, mechanics, construction workers, teachers, countless more, will continue their vocations throughout all eternity. A vocation not touched by sin, but perfectly good and perfectly meaningful for all of eternity. We could describe a whole lot more about the new creation and what day-to-day life will be like, but I just want to talk about one more thing. The new creation will be a place of feasting. It will be a place of feasting. Many, other, many people often wonder if we will eat in the new creation. I think the answer is, is, of course, we absolutely will. Jesus' resurrected body at the end of John is able to eat food. We see in the new creation that there's going to be a feast, a banquet, a celebration of, of God's victory, and it's a celebration with his people. Matthew chapter 8, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
Again in Luke, when one of them who was reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I want you to take a moment and just think of your favorite food. For some of you, it might be fair food. Others of you might have more refined taste than that. Not that I don't love fair food. Take a moment and think of your favorite food. Think of the the sweetness or the tang or the salt or the spice that you cherish so much. Think of the, the texture, whether it's creamy or or chunky, whether thick or thinly sliced. Now think of this. Think of enjoying that food for all eternity with glorified taste buds as a sign of worship to God. There will indeed be feasting in the new creation. Some of you, of course, might wonder if we'll get to enjoy meat. Uh, You might like meat. Uh, It's a tough question, very difficult, because uh, to eat meat, uh, it it means that something will have to die. And we look at the the original creation, God's original plan for for humanity uh, included them not eating meat. But I I suspect that we'll eat meat somehow in the new creation. Consider these uh, words about the new creation from Isaiah. This is from the NIV, because it highlights it a little better than the ESV. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. The best of meats. We don't know exactly how meat will be present in the new creation, but I, but I think that this describes uh, that God is going to not withhold all good things from us. So if you look at the new creation, what will day-to-day life be like? It's going to be extraordinarily ordinary. It's going to be supernaturally natural, abnormally normal. The morsels that we experience in this life, the things that that we enjoy, the satisfaction that we experience in this life, that points us to what we can look forward to for all eternity. Let's look at another question. One of our most popular questions was, does it matter if I am cremated or buried? Uh, The answer is no. No. It doesn't. So let's look at the next question. Uh, Okay, I'll spend a little more time on that. Uh, In one sense, of course, it doesn't matter. The same God who created everything out of nothing uh, is able to resurrect a body no matter what happens to it. No matter if it's cremated or buried, it's true for those who are cremated. It's true for those who have been buried, uh, those who have died thousands of years ago and their bodies are further along in the decaying process. It's true for those that their bodies have been lost or gone, and on and on and on. God can do anything. There's nothing that's too hard for him. So in one sense, of course, it doesn't matter. And yet, I think it is preferable for Christians to practice burial as opposed to cremation. You might be wondering why, and that's because burial can be a declaration of one's hope and confidence and the promise of God for a resurrected body. God is going to resurrect the body. He's not going to destroy it. So the idea of cremation makes very little sense when following a God who values the body so highly. We do not destroy the body, but we symbolically put it to sleep. 
What's more, we actually have historical and biblical precedents for this idea. In the Roman Empire, cremation was the norm. When the church was just starting to exist and just founded, the church, at great financial cost, began to practice burial rather than cremation as a sign of their faith, their confidence, and the promise of God for a new physical resurrected body in the new creation. What's more, in the Bible, we see that our burial provides us with an opportunity to declare our future hope, even when we die. Hebrews 11, we looked at this earlier. Hebrews 11, verse 22 says this, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This verse is absolutely fascinating. We, we spent a, a long time in Genesis, uh, a, a year or two ago, and we, we looked at the story of Joseph, and we saw that Joseph is just an impeccable figure in the Bible. He is one who no sin is recorded, uh, and he does rights time and time again. We see his constant faith in God, and yet when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, uh, a chapter that talks about the, the clearest pictures of faith from people in the Old Testament, the author decides that this moment when he dies or gives instructions about his bones is the clearest picture of his faith. More than when he forgave his brothers. More than when he provided for the people of Egypt and the surrounding nations. This moment when he gives instructions about his bones. See, Joseph had lived nearly his entire life in Egypt. He was a powerful man there. His wife was Egyptian. It was the only home that his children had ever known. And yet, with death approaching at the end of his life, he says, he desires, he requests that his bones not be buried in Egypt, but instead that they be buried in the promised land as a sign of his faith that God is going to do what he promised. He was going to bring the people of Israel back to the promised land. It was a confident declaration that God would bring that family back. He didn't want to be buried in Egypt, associated with Egypt. He had confidence that God would fulfill his promises, even in death. His life made a statement of his faith. What about you? Choosing burial over cremation can be an intentional declaration of your future hope. What do you want to declare with your life, even in death? Final question. Is there an age of accountability below which someone automatically goes to heaven? Many of us here this morning have lost children in infancy or in birth. Almost all of us have family members or friends who have suffered through the loss of a child in infancy or a miscarriage. And these questions here are particularly pressing. Will we see the children that we never knew, the grandchildren that we never had the chance to know in this life? What does the Bible say? And indeed, that's really the, the crucial question for us this morning. Because we can long for this to be true, but sentimentalism, emotional hopes and wants, desires, they're not sufficient reason for those of us who live under the authority of God's Word. 
What does the Bible say? It seems that the Bible does suggest that there is salvation for infants who die before they have the cognitive ability to understand right from wrong and hear the gospel. Let me look at a few reasons here. First and foremost, this idea of salvation of infants is not based on the innocence of infants. If an infant or an unborn child enters into heaven, it is through the exact same way each of us would. It's through the mercy and grace of Jesus. So with that in mind, let's, let's look at five evidences from the Bible that seem to suggest that God saves those who die before they have the mental faculties to know right from wrong, to understand the gospel. First, just look at the character of God. God is gracious, good, merciful. Scripture declares that God is a God of love, that God desires that all would be saved. We see that God has a concern for children time and time again in the ministry of Jesus. It fits the character of God for Him to save those who are lost in infancy. Second, note the aftermath of David's adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12. The son they conceived was lost, and yet David responds in this way, 2 Samuel chapter 12, but he is now dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and we'll stop right there. Notice that David does two things after his unborn son dies. First, and neither of these things is possible without a confidence in God's salvation for his son. First, he confesses his confidence that he will see his son again. Very beginning of, the, of his declaration here, he says, I will, he shall not return to me, but I will go to him. There will be this, this reunion one day. Second, he comforts his wife Bathsheba. There's no other reason for him to comfort her unless it is with this truth. This is made even clearer when you look at 2 Samuel 18, when another one of, of David's sons dies, Absalom, who leads the rebellion against David. And David says nothing of the sort. He just has grief because he knows his son is lost forever. Third, while the Bible is clear that all are born as sinners, it differentiates between being sinful in nature and the actions that we do. So we are all sinners, but we all sin as well. There is moral responsibility and understanding that is necessary for our being accountable for our sins, something that children and those with severe disabilities may not have. Fourth, we look at uh, the Gospels, and Jesus affirms that the kingdom of God belongs to little children. And fifth and finally, Scripture reveals that some are indeed sanctified in the womb. We can think of Samuel in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. So this clearly shows that at least some children are saved before birth, and it rejects the idea that only those who are baptized are assured of heaven. Now, let's be clear. If infants are saved, as I believe that Scripture hints at and seems to teach, it is only because they are saved through the saving work of Jesus and the regenerating work of the Spirit. Only Jesus can take away sin. Abraham pleading for the mercy of God upon Sodom famously asks this, 
Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? The answer, or the question goes unanswered because it doesn't need an answer. The answer is, of course, yes, God always does what is right. We can always trust God to do what is right. And while this teaching may give us comfort in the midst of unspeakable loss, I want us to consider just briefly the evangelistic plea that this truth gives us as well. If you are not a Christian and have lost a child in infancy or in the womb, do you really want to spend eternity separated from them? Charles Spurgeon, the famous British preacher from the 1800s, once cried out in a sermon these words, Many of you are parents who have children in heaven. Is it not a desirable thing that you should go there too? And yet, are there not some here today, perhaps many, who have no hope for the life to come? Oh, unconverted mother, from the towers of heaven, your child beckons down to you from paradise. Oh, ungodly, unrepentant father, the little eyes that once looked joyously upon you now look down upon you, and the lips that barely learned to call you father before they were sealed by the silence of death may be heard saying to you this morning, Father must be be forever divided by the great gulf by which no man can pass. If you will, think of these matters. If you will, turn your eye to him, and you shall live. And what a perfect way to end this morning. Indeed, to end this series. If you turn your eye to him, you will be saved. So take a moment and ask yourself, do you know your eternal state? Do you know your eternal state? Perhaps for some of you this morning, your answer is no but you feel this morning the nudging of the Holy Spirit, even if you don't even know that that's what is happening, and you look at this passage, and you want to make a way to move forward, but you sense that God is calling you to follow Him, and the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, if you sense God is calling you to repent and follow Him, to trust in the work of the Son on the cross for your sake, do not ignore that. You don't have a guarantee that your heart will ever be soft again. If you have always thought that you are a Christian, and this morning maybe you aren't aware, you aren't sure if you've trusted truly and fully in the mercy, the grace of God that he's offered to you on the cross, again, the, the, the answer is the same to you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For those of you who can confidently answer, yes, you do know your eternal state because you have turned your eyes to Jesus and you shall live. You know that that is a truth about you. You look forward to the eternal blessedness, the promises that God will one day fulfill for you because of what Jesus has done in your place for you. The words of this series 
are not just to fill your head with knowledge. It's not just to satisfy your curiosity. When we look at the Bible, God tells us what is to come after death. He does it for two reasons. He does it first so that we can have hope in the midst of a life that oftentimes feels hopeless. It's to encourage us when we need encouragement that God will one day fulfill his promises. And second, it's, it's also to motivate us to live a life for him, to seek him completely and wholeheartedly. Do not come away from this series only with more knowledge, but instead with an awe and understanding of God's blessedness or God's love for you, the blessedness that awaits you when you fix your eyes upon Jesus, the Savior who has purchased that blessedness for you. This morning, wherever you are, whether you're far from God, you've never considered yourself a Christian, you've... uh, Consider yourself close to God. You're not sure of where you stand with God. The grace of Jesus, the mercy of what God has done for us, is available. All of us live in broken relationship with God and will have to answer for the sin that we have done with our lives one day. And God restores the brokenness of our relationship with Him through Jesus. Jesus took our place of judgment so that we could take his place of inheritance and blessing alongside of Jesus. We must only turn our eyes to him. And so as we close, I invite you to to pray this prayer with me. For some of you, it might be the first time. For others, it's the hundredth. If If you don't feel led to pray this prayer, that's fine. But wherever you're at, if you want more of Jesus... Would you pray with me? God, we stand in awe of you. As we look at the unbelievable plan, the unbelievable blessedness that you have awaiting your people, we're rendered speechless. With the psalmist, we ask, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? confess that we're not worthy of your grace. We're not worthy of your love in the slightest. And yet you pour it out in abundance. An abundance beyond measure. God, we look at our lives. We see lives marked with sin, selfishness, pride, rebellion, worship of self. And yet when we look at your son, we see spotlessness perfection, rest, and peace. God, we, forg- we ask that you would forgive us this morning, that you would cleanse us from sin. We do not look to ourselves for salvation, but rather we look to you for salvation from ourselves. Help us to trust in Jesus either for the hundredth year or the first second. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. 
Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.